0: Thank you, Eli. Good to see you all today. Thanks for joining us for this time of worship. If I haven't met you, my name's Matt, and I'd love to meet you uh, before you leave today. Um, You know, I, I don't know what to believe anymore, which now that I'm saying it seems like a strange thing to say right after our scripture reading the two are not connected but if you're anything like me you have found yourself muttering this phrase under your breath with increasing frequency and I don't know if it's just a byproduct of the aging process or maybe being jaded by experience I really do try not to be cynical but for instance when it comes to maybe the world of politics I automatically distrust anything I hear regardless of political or ideological affiliation, I just don't trust much anymore. Now, I want to be clear, I also get that it's very possible that there are some in this room who have that same inclination about somebody like me, a pastor standing on a stage with a microphone. That I assure you, that is not lost on me. And to be fair, I think this is a much bigger issue. I don't think it's limited to the world of politics, not limited to the world of religion. Constant technological advances make this increasingly problematic. For instance, I'm thinking even of later this summer grading essays in a class that I'm teaching now with the development of AI software like ChatGPT. Like, what am I going to believe when I grade an essay? Or I think about the abundance of social media filters which are no longer turning faces into like cartoon animals, but they're actually very believable. I don't know what to believe anymore. If, if we thought the lip-syncing scandals of the early 90s were bad, <laughs> we haven't seen anything yet. Can I trust what I hear or read? Can I even trust what I am seeing with my own eyes? With all of that in mind, perhaps more than ever, the speech that Jesus calls his followers into is one of the most attractive countercultural ethical commitments we will make. In a sea of deceit, we are called into lives of simple honesty. Let's return to the Sermon on the Mount where we've spent the last month or so, picking it up where we left off, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, where Jesus says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So this by now very familiar phrase is shifting our focus onto the patterns of speech expected among participants of God's kingdom. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform or do what you swear. So this is Sort of a summation of various Old Testament teachings and wisdom where God's people had been instructed when you swear an oath, follow through with that. If you appeal to God's name when you make a vow, even going as far as to invite punishment on yourself, if you do not keep that vow, you better keep the vow. Wisdom is repeated time, and again, we find it in a place like Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm going to read a a pretty lengthy section, because any time there's an opportunity to read lengthy passages from Ecclesiastes, I'm going to take them. The author says this, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth therefore let your words be few for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words when you vow a vow to god do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools pay what you vow it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay Or we could jump ahead to the New Testament where we find James, the brother of our Lord, almost verbatim repeat Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in James chapter 5 verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. James says above all, do not swear. Clearly we are not talking about those crass four-letter words we are tempted to scream when we stub a toe. E- even crass words are not intrinsically sinful. They're syllables smushed together. The broader issue for James throughout the letter he's writing when it comes to patterns of speech has to do with how we use our words more broadly. Do do we speak with the intent to build up, encourage, show kindness? If... If we are using our words in order to belittle or denigrate, we misuse speech in destructive ways. So obviously, we can avoid using cultural curse words and still speak in ways that are failing to love. So that's one of the points James is making more broadly. But Jesus, again, is speaking specifically about taking or swearing oaths. You have heard it said, don't swear falsely. So he's referring back to the Old Testament law. There there was a clear provision in the law which allowed for oaths and stipulated how God's people were to use them. And it wasn't total avoidance. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find the command to fear God, to serve him alone, and to swear by his name. Explicit instruction to swear by the name of God, not by the names of other gods. So not only is it permissible, according to the Old Testament, to swear an oath, but there are explicit instructions on how to do so. And it wasn't a complete free-for-all. There are still strict standards that guide oath-making for Israel. Leviticus chapter 19, again, God's people are instructed not to swear falsely. In God's name. So, even though oaths were permissible for the people of Israel, this was still a very serious issue, one that shouldn't be taken lightly. But then Jesus comes along, and as he has done throughout the sermon so far, he says, You have heard that it was said, verse 34, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus says, do not take an oath. At all. Now, many of our Anabaptist brothers and sisters to this day take this instruction from Jesus very literally and have very serious issues with taking oaths, refusing to do so on religious grounds, even if called as a witness into the courtroom. There's sort of this intentional opting out of some of society's standard procedures. And I will say that that willingness to completely modify life in order to try to remain faithful to Jesus is certainly admirable, and I think there's something really important we can learn from that willingness to sacrifice. But personally, I don't know if that strict, literalist interpretation is necessary. I don't know that this is as much a prohibition against swearing because of some innate evil associated with taking an oath. So, for instance, if asked to do so by an outside force like a government, I don't necessarily think we have to see this as a call from Jesus to refuse to do so, to completely opt out of society in that way. Others disagree, and that's fine, but whatever side of this issue you happen to land on, I think one of the most important takeaways applies regardless of how we read this. In, in my reading of this teaching, Jesus is primarily stressing for his people the importance of truthful speech. If we consistently speak truth without exaggeration, without superficiality, Without misdirection or misrepresentation, an oath becomes completely unnecessary because those who know us know they can trust what we say. One historian suggests that at this point in history, oaths had become so commonplace that a statement was almost disregarded if it wasn't accompanied by an oath. An oath is what made words seem reliable. So people would invoke the name of God as the witness. God is the witness, the one who can punish the oath taker if an oath wasn't true. It, it sort of added this element of trustworthiness to what was said. Well, I mean, if they're willing to be punished by God, they must be very serious about what they are saying. Now, by the time Jesus comes along, some, out of maybe a reverence for God or a desire not to profane God's name, or maybe out of a fear of what swearing by his name might bring on them, some started swearing not by God's name, but by other things, but things that still communicated that they were serious about what they were saying, but maybe didn't put them at risk at least in their own thinking of having God smite them or something like that. It was almost this game of verbal gymnastics. So we can use an alternative to God's name to still show that we're serious about what we're saying, but we're we're not at risk of anything. Jesus lists here in the sermon some of the alternatives that were common in the day. Things like heaven, earth, Jerusalem, Or your own head. And as Jesus lists these alternatives that had become common, it's as though he's saying, stop the charade. All of creation is God's. So when you swear by heaven, thinking that brings authority to what you're saying, the reason that seems to carry weight is that it's the throne of God. It is still referencing God. When you swear by Jerusalem... The authority proceeds from the fact that that is the holy city where God meets his people. If you swear by the earth, that is God's footstool. If I swear by my own head, I am still dealing with God's creation. It's not something I have complete control over. She says, I don't even have the power to make my rapidly graying hair return to its deep brown color. Sure, I could dye it. But eventually it grows out and I'm in the same position. I don't have control even over something as simple as that. It is all God's. So whatever whatever I'm pointing to, to bring authority to the words I'm saying, ultimately has God as the reference point. Jesus says that's a charade. Now, when we swear in our world, or promise if you were like me and weren't allowed to say swear growing up, but we could say promise. Um, Logically though, when you think about it, it's, it's sort of meaningless. If I swear that something I'm saying is true, that's not a legally binding document necessarily, like we might think of when we scribble our John Hancock on an important document or something, I'm not obligated to speak truth just by attaching some special formula to a statement like, I swear, regardless of what all for one taught us. Um, That's for any Gen Xers in the room. I'm hoping that you have that song running through your head. That Somebody's whistling it. I like it. (laughs) And I swear. We're really getting off track here. That's why I'm, I need to stick to a manuscript. Um, a dishonest person is likely still going to be dishonest even if they say, I swear. You know, Immanuel Kant, the 18th century German philosopher, was famously sort of disgusted by the practice of swearing oaths and, and argued that it was pure superstition. To think that someone who isn't trustworthy might be persuaded to speak truth by simply invoking some verbal formula is sort of a farce. In fact, he, his concern was even greater than, than thinking it was just superstition. He feared that the greater importance given to oaths almost sanctions the common lie. The more used to uh, attaching something to make our words seem true, um, it makes it more common for us to lean into dishonest practice, which actually sounds fairly similar in some ways to what Jesus seems to urge. He says, my people shouldn't need an oath to convince others their speech is true. He says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Truth-telling should be such a normal part of our patterns of speech that when we open our mouths, it is automatically assumed that what proceeds is, in fact, true. Now, the fundamental issue, I think, for us to consider is whether we view our habits of speech With such gravity that we're willing to give them special care. Especially in regard to this issue of speaking truth. And I'm not sure that we always do. But if we look at this text from Jesus, it seems as though our speech is an essential ethical marker of the community that has gathered around Jesus. I mean, just look at the Sermon on the Mount. It appears right here alongside issues of anger and hatred, sexuality and lust, retaliation and forgiveness. And right in the middle of all of that is this call into simple honesty. Speech is such a big part of our everyday lives And thus, a major consideration in our pursuit of living under God's reign is to use our words wisely. And this is a consistent teaching that we find throughout our scriptures. We might think of that famous proverb that says, Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Or looking back to James, the brother of our Lord, earlier in that letter he writes, he he talks about how the tongue is... One of the smallest members of the body, but it might just be the most powerful. He likens it to a bit in a horse's mouth, which enables even a tiny child to control or direct a huge beast. He says it's like a rudder on a ship, which is one of the smallest parts of a ship, and yet it can change the course of a massive ship in the middle of the sea. The tongue is like a tiny spark, which might go unnoticed until it causes a fire that burns down thousands and thousands of acres of a forest. Yes, it is small, but it's incredibly powerful. And I wonder if sometimes, because it's such a normal part of life, It seems so common or ordinary, and as a result, we don't often give it nearly the scrutiny it deserves. The truth matters. And in part, the truth matters because the God we worship is a God of truth. A God who cares about truth. In fact, in the biblical story, this is one of the fundamental differences between the God we worship and the satan. In John chapter 8, when, when Jesus is delivering very strong words for those who are opposing his work and the claims that he makes about himself, he, he says, Look, you are in line with the devil. And the devil is a murderer, verse 44, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The father of lies says, lies are his native tongue, but not so with Jesus. Jesus is speaking the truth, and elsewhere makes the claim, in fact, I am truth. I'm the resurrection, the truth, and the life. Dishonesty, misrepresentation, deceit. These are patterns of speech that are incongruent with the values of God's kingdom. In our world, it is very normal to use these tactics of misrepresentation and deceit to maybe get ahead or to achieve a particular goal or to stay out of trouble, whether it's as simple as fudging numbers on a time card or dishonest business practices or concealing truth in order to not face the consequences of something that has been done, or maybe we would think of scammers taking advantage of vulnerable people in the technological age. It is a tale as old as time, no respecter of era or person or dominant economic theory in my opinion. Deceit is always an efficient way to achieve goals. But it is sinful. Sinful. It resists God's kingdom because God's kingdom is one of truth. So for us, as those seeking to live as participants in God's kingdom, honest, simple, authentic speech is one way we are salt and light. In a sea of deceit. These are noticeable alternatives in a world of utilitarian convenience where lies and misrepresentation are excused because of their expediency. There are a variety of reasons that we might be tempted by deceit. Maybe one is that we are so desperate to be accepted by others or to avoid disappointing others and so we're going to say whatever others want to hear regardless of whether or not it is true or maybe it is just a matter of utility it it seems to be more expedient to lie than to do the difficult work of truth telling or to face the consequences that truth telling might lead us into Or maybe back to what we talked about at the beginning of our time today. I don't know what to believe anymore. Deception is the cultural air we breathe. It's, you know, been dubbed the fake news era. Deceit is so normalized, we have trouble knowing what to believe. And as a result, if we live in that environment for too long, the importance of truth is going to be minimized in our thinking. The 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote, truth is so obscured nowadays and lies so well established that unless we love the truth, we shall never recognize it. It's like that classic fable, the little boy who cried wolf. I don't know what to believe anymore. And so a powerful tool like speech becomes meaningless it could be used to warn a village about a wolf on the attack but it's been misused so often that the warning is completely ignored i think this is expressed in countless ways in our day I, i think of the ubiquitous cultural outrage we're exposed to at all times if everything is a crisis maybe nothing is a crisis if i catastrophize everything, the weight of genuine need I experience in the future might be met with passive indifference because people don't know what to believe. Where dishonesty is allowed to thrive, our relationships with one another will always suffer because genuine mutual connection is impossible where there is no trust. And it doesn't have to be overt dishonesty. It can be very subtle. In fact, in some ways, that subtle dishonesty poses an even greater risk to relational trust, I think. Because when there's a tinge of truth in what is being said, or, or when there's just enough plausibility to be believable, it can be really disorienting for us to try to navigate and figure out what to believe. We're called into lives of simple honesty as God's people now just to be clear maybe a a needed caveat just because something is true doesn't mean we always need to say it well I just tell it like it is I'm just blunt and you just need to deal with that well maybe we don't need to Truth-telling doesn't mean that we have to say anything that comes to our minds immediately and without reflection. And yet we are called to be people who care about the truth. And I want to suggest that if we become people with measured, restrained, thoughtful patterns of speech, people who speak the truth to the best of our ability on all occasions. As Jesus suggests here, oaths become completely unnecessary and superfluous because when we speak, people know we can be trusted. And maybe a first step for us in becoming people of truth is practicing restraint in our speech, pausing before we speak, You know, Thomas Merton aptly said silence is the mother of speech. Silence is the mother of speech. In other words, recognizing that our words, our speech is powerful, that our small, even quiet words can have an enormous impact and set a forest ablaze. We want to use them wisely. And silence... Practicing restraint, I think, can help. When we speak, people should be able to trust what we're saying. We may not always be right. In fact, we won't always be right. We may misunderstand truth, but to the best of our ability, we speak what is true. Our speech is measured, purposeful. Words are not tossed around carelessly but with thought. And so maybe after I practice restraint, understanding that silence is the mother of all speech, I practice restraint and that becomes a habit of mine. And then I have the margin, I have the space before I speak to run my words through a couple of filters. Is what I'm about to say true? I think that's the very first filter that is needed. Is this true? true and if it's not i'm not going to say it and after that maybe we can run to the next filter well is what i'm saying saying even if it's true is it bearing good fruit is it helpful in this situation i want to suggest that in our lives and in our speech more specifically we should pursue simplicity humility and truth. We refuse to use dishonesty to exert our wills in a situation in order to get what we want. This is the life that Jesus has called us into. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, as participants in God's kingdom, we are committed to putting away, to putting away all deceit, caring about the truth because our God is a God of truth. The truth matters. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to gather around the table of our Lord. And as we do, we invite the Holy Spirit to shine the spotlight in our hearts and in our minds to bring correction where it might be needed. And my guess is that when it comes to patterns and habits of speech, there is a lot of needed correction. And I'm guessing that because I know my own heart. And when it comes to this conversation, there is a lot of needed correction. And so I would encourage you, just as I'm doing in this moment, to invite the correction of the Holy Spirit. To highlight ways in which our patterns of speech are not reflective of the kingdom we are willingly participating in. I'm going to say a prayer, and then we'll invite you to celebrate around the table of our Lord. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, someone will be here and speak the words over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. So even as we invite the correction of the Holy Spirit, and as we turn in repentance to the truth, as we celebrate around this table, we are also reminded that we are receiving the mercy of Jesus for ways in which we have sinned and gone astray, particularly today as we think about our patterns of speech. So Jesus, we ask that you would correct us as we reflect upon our use of words, maybe sometimes wise, but maybe sometimes unwise. Rushed, not measured. We ask that you would forgive us for instances in which we misuse our speech, for the lies we tell, even subtle lies, misrepresentation, subtle deceit. Jesus, forgive us. And as we come to the table with open hands, we receive your mercy. So now we pray, Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of your servants and purify our disordered affections, that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord this morning?